Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the VCM Quick Strike for Monday, August 29th, 2022. As I'm starting to record this morning's episode, it is 7, 10 a.m. Central Time, and I am watching with great interest the Artemis launch preps, which is they're supposed to launch in about 23 minutes if all goes according to schedule. Very excited about this. The last time that NASA launched a rocket to the moon that is capable of actually bringing life, bringing people to the moon. I was five years old. That was 1972. I barely remember the launch. Glad to see that we're going to be heading back there. From Portland, Oregon, Portland city officials accidentally sent hacker $1.4 million. Hacker managed to swindle the city of Portland, Oregon, according to PC Mag. Out of $1.4 million by tricking municipal employees into wiring them the funds back in April. This is classic business email compromise here. Now, what makes this a little bit interesting is that at one point, the city's treasurer, according to the article, flagged the $1.4 million transfer as potentially fraudulent. So we have good compensating controls kicking in here. This was because the name of the account receiving the wire transfer failed to match the general, the central city concern's own bank account name. So the city treasurer demanded municipal municipal employees confirm the bank account, which they did, but they did by confirming over email instead, instead of actually going to a known different communication channel. And henceforth, the 1.4 million transfer was made, and they probably will not get much, if any, of that back. If you have a primary control fail and then you have compensating controls fail, what do you have? Fail. Coming to us from Healthcare IT News, stolen Texas health data may be posted to the dark web. So this is Collin County, Texas-based Methodist McKinney Hospital, Methodist Allen Surgical Center, and Methodist Craig Ranch Surgical Center. They were the victims of a ransomware attack on July 5th. The system had confirmed on July 29th. Now, they did not pay the ransom, according to a report that apparently was on CBS News. The information here involved is what you would think that would be involved in such a breach, including names, addresses, social security numbers, dates of birth, medical history information, medical diagnosis information, treatment information, medical record numbers, and health insurance details. Now, The reason why that they're thinking that this may be released is that apparently a known practice of the Karakurt team, which is the ones responsible for this breach, that that's a known practice, that they don't actually encrypt. The victims have not reported encryption of compromised machines, according to a quote in the article, those who were typically victims of Karakurt. But rather, Karakut actors have claimed to steal data and threatened to auction it off and release it to the public unless they receive payment of the demanded ransom according to a CISA alert from earlier this year. Speaking of CISA, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, on Friday they added 10 new known actively exploited vulnerabilities to its catalog, this from the Hacker News. Among these, a couple of interest, are a high-severity security flaw affecting industrial automation software from Delta Electronics. And for that particular one, they note that there are no patches that address the vulnerability, with CISA noting that the, quote, impacted product is end of life and should be discontinued if still in use. Another 
flaw that was added to the list is a deserialization issue in Apple's core telephony component that could be leveraged to circumvent sandbox restrictions. There's more details on the 10 plus IOCs and the usual regular stuff that comes along with these announcements. I think it's good to keep up with those from CISA. And on occasion, I try to include them here in the podcast. From gbhackers.com, the Grandiorero is a banking trojan that has been identified recently by the security analyst at Zscaler in recent attacks. Apparently, this malware has been in, active in the wild since 2017. It is currently targeting mainly Spanish-speaking countries such as Mexico and Spain, where the threat actors are trying to exploit organizations that are located there, according to the article. Uh, the article also notes that a number of new features have been added to this new variant, as well as a revamped command and control mechanism to make it more difficult to detect and analyze, such as key logging, the ability to automatically update older versions and modules with newer versions, using web injects and restricting certain websites from being accessed, execution of commands, manipulating windows, a specific URL is provided to the victim's browser, generating domains in C2 through the use of DGA and mimicking the movements of a mouse and a keyboard. Now, most of those who listen or watch this podcast are not from Spanish-speaking countries. I understand that. I know that from the wonderful statistics that Anchor is able to provide on the metrics of your podcast audience. There's a little plug for Anchor there again. Um, but what happens elsewhere in the world could very well, if it's successful, be repackaged and used in other areas. So it's always good to have threat uh, awareness of what's going on, even if it's not something that directly right now would be impacting your area. Now, here's an interesting question. Do cyber criminals follow a moral code of practice? This is a opinion piece from Cyber News, and the opinion piece would seem to argue on the side of yes. Specifically, they say that it is evident that there is a moral compass amongst thieves. The rationale is when during the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, that when healthcare systems were stressed to the maximum, that cyber criminals just laid off from attacking. But now that COVID has pretty much receded to the rear view mirror with the exception of some endemic instances in other words pandemic over endemic now meaning that we're just something like the flu that we live with they've decided apparently to come back and attack healthcare systems specifically they're talking about attacking the uh, the UK's national health service so i'm not sure though if that's necessarily a moral compass or indication or if it's just more about the realities of business. It's hard for me to equate a criminal organization with having a moral compass to begin with, because it's like if you're doing something against the law, that could be construed as kind of being immoral. But I would submit as a consideration that really what we're seeing is that it would have been more difficult for the healthcare systems to pay the ransom and to recover than not. Of course, you can argue the other way that they would be more incentivized to pay the ransom when they're really, really, really under siege, so to speak, and very much um, at the height of the pandemic and, and all of the stresses that were going on there to just sort of get rid of something else. But anyway, it's an interesting take. Thought y'all might be interested in reading that a little further. It's not a long article.
And finally, this is, I think, very interesting, could be extraordinarily useful. From Security Week, enterprise browser startup Island snags massive funding round. Quote, an early stage startup, Island, has building a security themed enterprise browser has raised $115 million at a $1.3 billion valuation, becoming a cybersecurity unicorn in less than two months after emerging from stealth with $100 million in funding. So this is a rather interesting approach here. We're talking about having the enterprise completely control the browser. And I think that this could be vitally important because in today's world now, we have two things that have converged. One is so much is SaaS-based, and then that, of course, is relying upon using the browser. And two, work from home as an end product from the COVID pandemic, which there are elements of work from home which are going to be around forever. The, the whole situation has definitely been altered uh, permanently to some extent. And the idea of securing the browser completely and, and monitoring and, and managing it uh, centrally, not just from the point of what we can do today, and that is, of course, limit where the browser goes to, but this seems to be a lot more granular, a lot more able to ensure that best practices are being followed when you have someone at home, whether they're using their own device or another device that particularly their own device, if it's their own device, but they're mandated to use this particular browser that can be controlled a little bit more. Anyway, something good to keep an eye on. I certainly will. Um, and since I guess this is an enterprise browser setup, I didn't see any way that you could download and test it as a one-off. And that kind of makes sense, I guess, just giving its model. But I do have some thoughts about browsers and browser history in 30 seconds. I love just watching and thinking about how browsers have evolved over the extent of my career. Now, pretty much there has been an internet browser available since I started. Actually, the first browser came out, at least that I remember, not long after I started part-time in IT as a network tech. And it wasn't graphical and it still exists and still has use. Some of you who are very much into Linux know exactly what I'm talking about. That's Lynx. Lynx was the first, as I understand and remember, hypertext application. And it was really cool because you could actually, within a graphical document on the web, not a graphical, I'm sorry, a, a text document on the web, you could embed hyperlinks to other areas and you could then very easily point people to references of what you were talking about and also remember at the time too that the internet and networking at that time was heavily research and very very light on commercial there was not many who have a, who had adopted it as a use for anything and and why would they there was no browser uh, we had bulletin boards and chat, such as um, I think IRC, Inter Internet Relay Chat was one of the early ones. Again, all text-based, not graphical. And for context, time-wise, this would have been 89, 1990, something like that. I guess um, the younger folks refer to that time period as the late 1900s now. 
So that's fine. I'm okay with that. We went from that. And then I remember the actual first graphical browser was Mosaic. And that was like a big, wow, all this stuff you could do. You could actually see pictures. And then the idea of having video on the browsers, uh, which, which was very, very limited at the time. It was very pixelated. And the idea was that only the pixels that were changing would be the ones that would be changing on the screen, only the data. And I'm sure that that's the way that it still works today. As I'm recording this, and I'm still watching the preparations for Artemis, which has been delayed, but I'm watching it on a live feed on my browser, which of course is not Mosaic. And then Netscape really, I think, was the big browser that introduced it to the masses. And that's when it became a lot more commercially viable. Folks started building websites. I remember I built my first personal website straight up from HTML. And it was just like a basic one. I threw some pictures up and this and that. No service, just coded it directly. It wasn't all that difficult then. It isn't difficult now, although it's more difficult to make it secure now, obviously. And then, it, and then, and you're talking, I think now maybe like late 1990s or late 20th century. Um, and then from there, I think the commercial aspect of it exploded with everything Microsoft. Of course, Microsoft, they, they really took over the server space. I talk, talked about that before, how Novell lost out in the server space. Well, they had Internet Explorer, which was, wow, okay, this is great. They're packaging all, all of it together. Internet Explorer was the browser for the longest time. Some of us who weren't really pleased with being attached so heavily to Explorer looked at other options. I was a big Firefox fan for a while. In fact, um, actually more so from the mail client side. Um, Netscape had a pretty decent mail client, if I remember correctly, at the time as well. Um, and then, oh, I, as I'm talking to you, I see that they have just scrubbed Artemis for today. That's okay. They'll launch again at some other time. So we get to get real-time information from browsers today about the, like stuff like the space launch of Artemis, whereas it's a technology that has been around for a long time. But of course, with all the things you can do, the more you can do, the harder it is to control and the more likelihood that there will be some sort of infraction or vulnerability that's exploited. So I'm, I'm excited about it. There, there have been other browsers that have, have increased security. Opera did some, um, there's one, uh, it comes to mind right now. I'm actually, I, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, brave brave is one that, uh, I'm playing around with a little bit now, but this idea it's built on Chromium, but, uh, these, this Island browser, which is fully controlled apparently as an enterprise browser browser, very interesting and certainly an interesting point in the evolution of both adding more features and more access and more security than on top, particularly in this work from home environment. So keep an eye on Island. I certainly will keep an eye on Artemis. They'll launch eventually as well too, just like Island will launch eventually. So until then, stay secure.